Exodus, the third chapter, we're taking up in verse 16. Once again, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Genesis 3:16. God is speaking to Moses. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. That every woman shall ask her neighbor, namely of all of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew out, drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you or heed the message of the first sign, that you may believe the mess that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord God, as you have appointed the preaching of your word to be the means by which You send forth the message of grace even in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word and the hearing, that you would attend it with your Holy Spirit, that you would accomplish your holy will in our midst. All to the praise of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you were here when we were preaching through the book of Genesis. We saw in the beginning how God accomplished great and mighty works of creation. 
Although no man was present to see those great works, God revealed what was done in the first week of creation, and Moses wrote it down. So we know what was what took place in truth. And since the beginning of time, God has accomplished great and mighty works of providence. God works through causes and means to bring about whatsoever He has ordained. He makes it take place. At times, He spoke to men of old in dreams and visions, revealing marvelous and wonderful things. You remember how that was with the Pharaoh in Joseph's days. That God revealed to him that seven years of plenty were coming, followed by seven years of famine. Prior to that, God even appeared to Moses and Isaac and to Jacob, revealing to them his will for them. And so we see these remarkable events. In addition to these, God also has at times interrupted the laws of nature. And he has accomplished signs and wonders, just miracles, the supernatural. Listen to how Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 3, captures this. Speaks of these truths. God, in his ordinary providence, we're just talking about that, makes use of means. Yet, he works through means in his providence. Yet, he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. He's God. And we're going to see that as we make our way through the book of Exodus. There are two periods in history where God displayed his majesty with signs and wonders. In these days of Moses, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus. At the time of the Exodus, and then in the times and the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the time of the redemption of men's souls, the fulfillment of the Exodus that is recorded here, and what it points to is the Exodus of Christ bringing his people out of the bondage of sin. In these two epic times, God does mighty signs and wonders. Yes, there were prophets in times of old who performed miracles at God's commandment. They were limited, and they were used to prove uh, that the the prophet was sent of God, a man of God. Right now, we are in a season. We're waiting for something else supernatural. When this same Jesus, who went up in the clouds, comes again, as was told by the angels to the disciples, when he will come then with a mighty shout, and what? Raise the dead, all the dead amongst men, and we shall all be caught up into heaven. So what's he doing right now? There are those in parts of the church who somehow or another manufacture and and, um, through trickery have so-called miracles, signs, and wonders, but... They miss the point. What, what is God doing today that is supernatural? Is God doing something supernatural today? My friends, if you sit here and you have a new heart, if you've been born by, of God, born of the Holy Spirit, that's of God. That's supernatural. Dead, sinful hearts do not regenerate themselves. Every time a sinner repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, God has acted in our world. And that will happen today. It happens every day. God is at work. And we rejoice in that. For is that not better than seeing seas parted, bread multiplied, lame walking? Those are marvelous things. But the greatest miracle of all, the most supernatural of all wonderful things, is when God takes the hardest stone out of a sinner and gives them 
a heart of flesh. I hope that you children are longing for that, praying that God would give you a heart of flesh by his mighty work. So God is still working. We're going to look at this passage with four main headings. You see them in your worship guard. God's message for Israel. God's message for Egypt. Then God's wonders to Egypt. And then God's wonders to Israel. We begin with God's message to Israel. We heard as we were reading uh, in verses 16 to 17. Remember in the previous a passage or earlier in verse 10, God said to Moses, he calls him out, he commissions him, he sends him as his man. He says, come and I will send you. Moses is in the wilderness. He's keeping sheep. He sees this amazing supernatural event, a bird bush burning, and yet it's not burned up. And he turns aside and he discovers that it's holy ground. God is there. And God then calls him and says, come and I will send you. Now in verse 16, we read that God says, go. He's been called to be sent, and now God is saying, go. Go and gather the elders of Israel together. God is sending Moses as a messenger to Israel, and particularly through their elders. Moses is being sent as an ambassador by God. He's going with God's message for an ambassador if he's faithful only brings that which the hire has given to him. An ambassador of a king is sent like a herald throughout the land with the king's message. It's not his freedom to embellish the message or even to pass commentary on the message. He's to go with the message. And God is sending Moses as an ambassador. He has the very word of God in his mouth. Moses is to gather the elders and to deliver God's word to them. First, God would have Moses tell them who it is who is speaking to them. What does he say? The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me. Notice this is the very name that God gave to Moses in response to his inquiry. Moses asked him, who shall I say has sent me? And then God speaks to him, verse 14. He says, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. That phrase, the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is summed up. It's wrapped up in what we find in our translations, capital L-O-R-D. The Lord. It, it is because of this passage that we understand L-O-R-D, the Lord, to be the covenant faithful Lord, the covenant faithful God, because he is recounting his faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even what is taking place here through Moses, uh, where Moses would go down and bring the people out of, Israel, out of Egypt, God told Abraham when he had but one son that they would be in Egypt, and then he would raise up someone to bring them out. And God, faithful to his covenant, faithful to his promise, has raised up Moses and he's sending them. This would have been something told to them, passed down from generation to generation about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that their God appeared to their forefathers. And Moses is to tell them their God, this God, is the one who has sent them. This would stir their memories. Moses was to tell the elders that this God, their God, the Lord God, had appeared to him. This was wonderful news. You think about how it would be 
Imagine that you've been seized and locked in prison. Well, we'll say you're being persecuted. It's not for some crime that you've committed. It's because you belong to Christ, not an unrealistic expectation in our day. And you've been put in a prison and you've languished there for months, even for years. The jailer is cruel to you. Uh, your rations of food and water are, are meat. You're just barely keeping your life. And then a messenger comes and says, tomorrow you will be set free. Wow. What a glorious announcement. This, this is something of what Moses is sending to tell the children of Israel. That God, that God, their God is coming into their midst. The second thing Moses was to tell to the elders of Israel I have surely visited you. This is God speaking. I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. I see your bondage. I see the harsh labor that is put upon you. I see the cruel treatment of your overlords. Think about it. Egyptian, I mean the Israelites, men and women laboring, serving, trying to care for families, trying to make sure everybody's fed. It's been a marvelous thing. God's been there. They did not see him. They did not hear him walking in the midst, but he has been there. He has seen their situation. He has seen their circumstances. He has come and he has taken note of what they're suffering. And then third, in verse 17, he is to tell them, I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the promise that God gave to Abram when he was known as Abram. When he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, he says, get up and go to a place that I will show you. And Abram travels and journeys. He makes his way westward. And then he comes to the land of Palestine. He comes to Canaan. And God says, everywhere you're walking, I will give this to your descendants. Abraham did not receive any of that. The writer of Hebrews tells us that actually Abraham came to understand that God has really given him was a better land, even one not made with human hands, the land of promise in heaven. But nonetheless, God had promised to give this land to them, a land occupied by a wicked people, perverse, despicably perverse in all their ways, their gross idolatry, gross immorality, despicable and unmentionable wickedness that was within their land. God says, I will drive them out and I will give that land to you. It's a fruitful land. It's a very productive land. Everything that you will need for life on the earth, God says, I'm going to do that. This was a promise. I will bring you up. Notice the language, I will bring you up. See how it says that? That's the very thing that happened to Moses. Remember how we said that Moses' life parallels the life of Israel? God says, I will bring you up. That's the very thing that when Moses was three months old, an infant in the ark, in the river, that he was brought up out of the river. God is declaring that he will deliver Israel out of their affliction. But that was not the end of it. He's promising them a land of tremendous abundance, of fruitfulness. And indeed, they will find that as you follow them along, you see them in the land. God so blesses them that in the sixth year, he sustains them. He gives them enough produce from the land for that year, the next year, the seventh year, the year of Jubilee. That's what was referred to where we're at in Deuteronomy 15. And then on into the eighth year. That is the first year when you start counting seven again. That there would be such an abundance. 
Is God not able to do this? Isn't this what he did through seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt? So that not only Egypt, but Israel and lands all around were sustained. God is able to do this. And God says, I'm taking you to the land of such abundance you can't even imagine it. I was just reading in my daily Bible reading where the spies are sent out. And they come back. This is hard for me. You guys know I make wine and I'm vines and branches and grapes. I read a lot about it. But they came back with two men carrying a pole. They had such a cluster of grapes that two men had to carry between them. You can imagine the eyes of the people popping out of their heads when they saw that thing. Land that was so abundant. God says, I'm going to give that to you. The reason for this message from God to the elders was to raise their expectations. To take their eyes off their suffering. To lift them up to the God who is able. God was about to do a mighty thing and deliver His people out from the hand of a mighty nation. Again, they couldn't even imagine that. They were going to the land that He had promised. Notice how how God begins in verse 17. And I have said. Again, reading through the Scriptures, It's remarkable to me. I was actually thinking about it this morning. How many times where it said, I have said, or I am the Lord. This statement of certainty, absolute certainty, because God has spoken it. God has said it. And therefore, he will do it. It's not that way with us, is it? As men. men? If you come, let's say I come and I make a promise to you. You're going to evaluate it. All right, uh, is this man who's making this promise, um, can I expect that his word's trustworthy? And sometimes we have people make great promises to us that it's like, mm, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical about that, right? But then we also consider, this is a great promise. Is this individual able to do it? We, we evaluate that with men, and, and oftentimes we're, we're skeptical for good reasons. It reminds us to be careful what we boast of being able to accomplish. We're looking at trustworthiness. But children, I want you to consider this. Children, look at me and listen. I have a question for you. Do we ever have to wonder whether God will keep his word? No. Let God be true and every man a liar. God is truth. And what God says he will do, he's able to do. Just think about that. He has promised to us miserable sinners, and we are great sinners, that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. God can do that. He has done that. He has supplied so great a salvation. And what God is promising these men, you know, it's a great and mighty thing to deliver them out of Egypt and to take them in a land occupied by even giants, mighty men, fortified cities. God says, I have said it. I'll do it. But what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus is far greater, eternally greater. He is able to do it. Children, some of you have learned the children's catechism. The answer, what, what is God able to do? Is he able to keep his promises? He's able to do all his holy will. All his holy will. And his holy will is to deliver Israel. And it is holy will that he was saved Sinful boys and girls, no matter how naughty you have been, he is able to save to the uttermost. Well, then God tells Moses something that he needs to know. In verse 18, 
See how encouraging this message. Moses is hearing all this. A few hours ago, he was leading stupid sheep in the wilderness. And then suddenly there's a burning bush, and he's face to face with the Lord God Almighty, the God of his father and the God of his fathers. And he's telling him great things, unimaginable things. And God says, verse 18, that they will heed your voice. They will heed your voice. They're going to listen to you, Moses. Wow. That's so encouraging. You know, God doesn't always say that. I referred to this a few weeks back. When God calls Jeremiah to send him to Israel, this is in the time when the captivity is upon them and they're under the siege. All this is unfolding in his life. God tells Jeremiah, he says, you're going to go to this people and they are not going to listen to you. But for Moses, God says they will heed you. Forty years before, Moses' countrymen didn't heed him. Who appointed you a ruler over us? And he fled. God has now appointed Moses to be their deliverer. A couple applications here before we go on. First, back to the matter of ambassadorship. It is the duty of ministers of the word today, no less than it was for Moses in that day, to be a faithful ambassador of God, to preach his word, period. To preach the whole counsel of God. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Convince, yes, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And this should be your expectation as members of the church. As a Christian, one following Christ, you should expect, you should even require that the pulpit be a place where God's word is preached. Not cultural matters, not uh, the latest fad, but indeed the very word of God. Except... No less. Secondly, child of God, even as God walked in the midst of his people, know that your father's eye is ever upon you. God is watching over you. He is looking upon you. He knows your situation. For some of you, that may be a great encouragement because of what you're going through right now. God sees. He's aware. But for all, it's good to remember that he watches us. And we remember that when we are tempted, that the Lord's eye is upon us. Not that we be super sneaky. We can't out-sneak God. I don't know if that makes sense, but you get the point. But in that moment, it's like God's watching me. And call upon the name of the Lord, knowing that he's there and that he will deliver you. Let it motivate us to cry out in time of need, particularly when tempted to sin. Well, secondly... We look at God's message to Egypt, beginning in verse 18. So he says, they will heed you, that is the elders, they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him. God is now saying, you're going to go to the elders, you're going to tell them who sent you, you're going to tell them what's going to happen, they're going to believe you, and then together you go with the leaders of my people, the elders of the twelve tribes, you're to go to Egypt, the king of Egypt. What do we see right here? That the mission of the church in every age, we are to go with the word of God to the nations. Kings and princes. To the lowly. To the weak. To the outcast. And back to what we were hearing a little bit ago from 1 Corinthians. To the withered. To the disfigured. To the disheartened. To the discouraged. We go with the word of God. We should not be ashamed to proclaim it to the lowly and even to the exalted just as God told Moses to say to the elders of Israel, God tells Moses that when he 
But what, when he and the elders go, he's telling them what they're to say to the king of Egypt. Verse 18, he says, You shall say to him, this is in the middle, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. You remember earlier that God says, I will give you a sign, Moses, that after I've accomplished this, you will be here to worship me again. And now the petition that they're to bring to the king of Egypt is to that end. Let these people go. Let my people go that you, they may come and worship me. I didn't, I don't know if I ever caught this before, but you see how close Mount Sinai was or Oreb as it's called? It was a three day journey. It's going to take a lot longer there to get there than that. But there's other reasons for that, as we shall see in the book of Exodus. But notice that Moses is not sent with a demand. God doesn't send Moses and say, I'm the Lord God of the Hebrews. You shall let my people go. Did God have a right to do that? He most certainly did. But he sends him with a humble petition. Notice it. You shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go. I love the old King James. Please, I pray thee, let my people go. Indeed, they were slaves of Egypt. They were inferiors then, and they were bringing their pleadings to the superior, even though the message is from God. That should inform us how we engage with people with the gospel. We don't thunder, repent or perish. Right? That really would get people to listen to our message, wouldn't it? Now he comes and say, have you ever considered your eternal soul? Have you looked at the marvelous work of the Lord Jesus Christ? He saves sinners. He even spoke to a woman caught in adultery. He said, go and sin no more. We, we begin that way. We come with a petition to those who are in lofty places as well as the lowly. Now in time, this approach of pleading and entreaty will fail. And then the message will become much more rigorous, even as God goes on to tell Moses. The petition to this king would not result in him being released. But nonetheless, they were going to the land of Canaan. Notice the request was that they should be allowed to go three days' journey to Mount Horeb, or as we find it called elsewhere, Mount Sinai, to worship the Lord, their covenant faithful God. It's a very modest and legitimate request. Their God that they worship and their worship of that God would be highly offensive to the people of Egypt. Their manner of worship. You see that even with Joseph is bringing his father and brothers into the land. That their very vocation of, of attenders as sheep was offensive to the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a different culture and a different way of looking at things. And so lest they be offensive to the Egyptians, let us go three days into the wilderness to worship our God. Notice this, sisters and brothers, in the world today, in our current cultural movement, as it has always been, the worship, the faithful, pure, true worship of the living God of heaven is always offensive to the culture around us. And so we shouldn't be alarmed and surprised at at the, the growing storm clouds against the church. We shrink, don't shrink back. We're, we be faithful. We stand firm, even as many of our brothers and sisters do today. So, if the king denies this humble request, then he would be completely inexcusable. And indeed, 
it would be justified for them to desert him and go to the land of God's promise. That's pretty much the argument of our forefathers they made when leaving the British Isles. They came to America because the king would not allow them to worship according to the word of God, according to a clear conscience. So therefore they came that they might have a place where they could worship with liberty of conscience. Notice this, God's message and manner of address to the king through Moses was reasonable, and it was delivered in a winsome manner. And therefore, the king's disobedience was all the greater, that he would resist God. Think about that right now. Perhaps you're a sinner, an unsaved sinner. You know you're a sinner. You have not called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you've heard the gospel. You've heard the invitation, the pleadings and entreaties of the living God calling you to come to him. And yet you resist that. Though he is winsome and he comes, he, he, the Lord Jesus Christ does not break a bruised reed. He does not snuff out a smoking flax. He comes to engage you. He bids you come. He offers us salvation full and free. And if you resist him, understand this, in the day of judgment, you will be found inexcusable. And God will condemn you to the lake of fire and hell's judgment forever and ever. And you will have no argument for you resisted the Almighty. Jesus comes to free you from the tyranny of sin. What does he say? Take my yoke upon you. Do you love the yoke of the world, the yoke of sin, the yoke of the flesh? How often does it lead us into so much trouble? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my burden is easy and light. No sinner will stand before God then and say that the message of salvation was too unreasonable. Nope. Their mouths will be stopped. Moses and the elders then are to go to speak. However, unlike the assurance that God gave to Moses that the elders would heed his voice, God assures Moses once again that the king would not. Look at verse 19. God says, this is interesting, you know, God says anything, it's an absolute, but he, he has an emphasis, but I am sure, God knowing the heart of the king of Egypt, He says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. And furthermore, God knows how it's going to play out. He's decreed how it's going to go. He says, no, not even by a mighty hand. He's not going to listen. And indeed, that's the way it is. God absolutely destroyed the nation of Egypt before they let him go. It's a hard message. But again, the application is the messengers of God must go and be faithful. No matter how difficult it is, we stay at our post and continue to proclaim his word. But thirdly, we hear this announcement of God's wonders to Egypt. So God's told Moses, king of Egypt, he's not going to listen to you. He won't let you go. Not even by a mighty hand. But then God speaks of what's to come. You look at this passage we're in. If, if you look at it as a whole, it's, it's, this is like... A summary passage of all that's going to happen in the next half of the book. God's God's explaining. Well, we found summed up in this. He won't allow you to go. He says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in his midst. And after that, he will let you go. One verse sums up that whole great struggle as God afflicts Egypt. It's much like uh, Joshua 
Moses' understudy, the one who takes on the leadership of Israel. And you see him as they're going to occupy the land. He says, well, these kings and these kings came out. We had a battle and it was done. It's just there's, there's no play-by-play. Play. I mean, it's, it's military and strategy, but it's, it's not this exhaustive treatment. It's just a summary of what took place. And here God is telling Moses, he's going to resist. I'm going to prevail. Amen. And that's true today, brothers and sisters. The world is in an uproar. Psalm 2. Kings and the rulers of the earth, they rage and plot vain things against the Lord and against His Messiah who is set on His holy throne. What does God do? He laughs and holds them in derision. What is man that he should boast against the Almighty? We'll see what that's like. As Pharaoh boasts. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Yeah, he really speaks that way. Well, he finds out who the Lord is. So God's going to do mighty works, wonders in the land of Egypt. In the end, God will prevail. Remember what Paul writes about Christ as the rock? For some, Christ is the rock that they fall upon and are broken in God's mercy. That they would be redeemed. For others, Christ is the rock that falls on them there and crushed for an utter, utter and eternal ruin. Well, God then tells Moses of his provision. God tells him he's going to display his mighty power. So I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all my wonders, and I will, which I will do in its midst, midst. And after that, they will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that when you go out, you shall not go out empty-handed. And here we see not only God's promise and the coming of plagues, but God's provision. Part of God's display of His power was that when Israel went out of the land, they did not go out empty-handed. They've been serving as slaves for 400 years. They've not received any wages for all their labor. This is theft. We're thinking about the Eighth Commandment today as we've looked at the law. They're being robbed. God even says to Israelites, don't withhold your labor's wages when it's in your hand to do it. You pay him at the end of the day. On many times the labor is, he's depending on that. They can go buy something to feed himself and his family for that night and the next day. And here for 400 years, Egypt has withheld the wages. God has seen it. And God has promised favor in the eyes of the Egyptians for the Hebrews. Israel will plunder Egypt and leave with their wealth. God instructs that at the right time the women are to ask their neighbor for all manner of good things. There's a foreshadowing of what will happen to the nations in Canaan. Not that they'll have favor towards the Hebrews, but God will conquer them. He will utterly destroy these nations and Israel will plunder that land and all the wealth of those nations that lies in the land of Canaan will come into his people. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered about where did all that beautiful stuff come from that they built a tabernacle with? There's the answer. They brought it with them out of Egypt. Egypt had incredible wealth. They were the most powerful nation and they took what they wanted from all the other nations, the finest fabrics, the finest foods, the finest gold and gems and jewels and wood. All that was theirs. In addition to these things, they're, they're also going to come out some wagons. you see that if you get on into numbers. They, they have wagons. They didn't just find those sitting in the wilderness. 
all this super abundance. They were hauling. It's like they took the semis of the day and loaded them up to haul the wealth of Egypt out of there. Their children loaded down. You put them on your sons and your daughters like little pack mules, struggling along with all these tremendous treasures. There's such an abundance. But God was making provision that from that which He gave them, that they'd be able to worship Him with a tabernacle. Even as we come week by week, God has blessed us through the week, and we bring out of the abundance, we bring our tithes and our offerings before the Lord, that we would magnify Him and that we would be reminded we have it from His hand. It's not on our own. A little short application here, or a principle, biblical principle. Principle: God has a wonderful way of balancing accounts, of righting wrongs, of compelling those who have robbed their workers of their wages to make restitution. When it comes to the end of it, as we'll see later on, when it comes time for Israel to go, the Egyptians are going to be saying, "Go, go! You want take it? Go, just go!" God sums it up. He's not going to listen to you, but I'll stretch out my hand and he will let you go. That's a summary of astounding things. The fourth one we see not only God's wonders to Egypt, but his wonders to Israel. This brings us on into chapter 4. These wonders are first shown to Moses. Moses is given an amazing commission. It's second only to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses is a Christ type. He, more than nearly any other figure in the Old Testament, points to Christ. Moses, a prophet, a priest, and a king. But even God says of him, he was the most humble man upon the face of the earth. And so it was, even more so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike Jesus, who came willingly and took on flesh, our flesh, and then went to the cross, laid down his life for his sheep. Moses is struggling with this commission. Remember, he, he fled. He's been herding sheep in the wilderness. And God says, now you're going to go to Egypt. And you're going to go speak to Pharaoh. And you're going to lead my people out. It's, it's all a bit overwhelming for Moses. And so what we see is Moses begins to object. And we're going to touch on that here, but we're going to see more objections later in the chapter. We're going to look at the first one. Verse uh, 1. Moses answered and said, but. That's an objection, isn't it? But. Suppose they will not believe me. Now, he's, God's assured him that the elders will listen to him. He's assured him that the king of Egypt won't listen to him. But now Moses is thinking about the people as a whole. But suppose they won't listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not answered you. Moses is first Objection. You see, Moses is a mere man just like you and I. There's all the weaknesses that we have. Moses has been listening to all this. And now he speaks. This, this is uh, the first word out of his mouth. But God's spoken. Even as we saw back in uh, earlier, 17, I have said the matter's settled. Moses says, but... So Moses asked for a sign. You think of the Gospels? I know I did. Moses asked for a sign. What did, God, what did Jesus say to the, the, the religious leaders of his day? A wicked and perverse generation asked for a sign. God does not answer Moses that way. Why? 
Moses does not have recorded scriptures. Moses is going to be the first one to write the inspired scriptures. And so God's mindful of where Moses is at and where he's come from and how much he knows. And so God is long-suffering. He is merciful with him. Israel has not seen signs. And indeed, the record of signs thus far is pretty short. You might think, well, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven, that's a sign. So God is merciful to Moses. So the wonder he shows to Moses, the sign of the rod is the first one. The sign is a double miracle, if you think about it. He says, throw down the rod, it becomes a serpent. Moses is wandering in the wilderness. He knows about these vipers and serpents that are in that place. That's a miracle. This is a dead rod. It's a dead piece of wood. He might have been carrying it for years, dead, dead, dead. And then God says, take hold of it. And he grabs it by the tail, and then becomes that same staff in his hand again. It was so much a serpent that Moses fled from it. Matthew Henry notes that this is a special honor that's now placed on Moses. Moses did not use charms or spells or incantations. He obeyed God. He threw down the rod and it became a serpent. He took it and it became a staff once again. Moses is being showed, you are my instrument. I am putting within you power and authority to do my will. Moses is given this power to demonstrate that he was sent by God. He's God's messenger. And then God gives him another sign. He said, if that's not enough, and you show that to the people of Israel, he said, now place your hand inside your bosom. And when he pulls it out, his hand is white. That's a clear indication of leprosy. You'll see that with Miriam later on in the account. His hand turns white. Can you imagine that? Leprosy was a death sentence. Leprosy is also one of the best pictures of sin in our lives. It's all pervasive. It eats and corrupts. You're, you're alive but dying. Dead though still alive. And so you imagine Moses pulls his hand back out. He probably gasped. I would have. You would have. And God tells him, uh, maybe quickly, put it back in. He pulls it out and it's restored as it was before. I don't imagine Moses is going, but, 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 but. I imagine he's speechless. These are amazing signs God has given to Moses. He gives them as signs then to use with the children of Israel. There's a little application with leprosy. In the times of the gospel, leprosy is a picture of sin. And yet what do we see? Jesus is able to touch the lepers and heal them. My friends, if you're a sinner... Christ is able to embrace you in your leprosy of sin and heal you. And he does not become unclean. He makes you clean. So he's shown these wonders to to Moses, and he's to show them to Israel as well. So Moses um, is shown these things. Verse 8, God knowing Moses, he says, Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water. One, two signs, a third sign. And we know the significance of threes. God says, okay, I'm going to give you one more. You should take water from the river, and you will pour it out on the dry land, and when the water comes out of the land, it's going to turn to blood. That's a third sign to Israel that they would know that God has sent Moses. And that third sign is a foreshadowing. It's a foreboding 
of the plagues that are going to come on Egypt. That indeed, the first one is the water throughout the land is turned to blood. And it becomes a plague. Conclude with this. Said in the beginning that there were only two times in history where we see these great clusters of miracles. I just have to say, real quickly, uh, years ago when we left Groton, we were down here at Covenant, and we were headed to send to Greenville. My oldest daughter and I, we took some things down to Greenville ahead of our move. And that Sunday we were there, we worshiped in one of the churches in the Greenville area in the evening service. I heard a message about this passage. Now, some of you know that in my high school years, I've been in a charismatic church. And the Lord has sorted out a lot of my understanding about a lot of things. But I still had questions with the signs and wonders. How does it fit into the whole scheme of things? And I heard a sermon that evening in service, we did, talking about how God uses signs and wonders at specific times. It's like God is saying, look, I am doing something. Look, I am present. And by my hand, I am making a great display of my power. And we see that here and we see it at the time of Jesus. Jesus performing Miracles that were unheard of, unthinkable. And it was noticed. And then even the apostles for some season afterwards. But after that period of the church establishment, the gospel, and all the coming of Christ, that passes, God's not doing that anymore. Because now, as the writer of Hebrews says, he has spoken to us in his Son. The great display of God's power is in his word. God has spoken in His Son. He spoke in the days of Christ, through Christ, His Word, His miracles, His messages. But remember when the apostles, Jesus said, we need to leave and go to another village. They said, well, there's still more people coming. And what were they coming for? They wanted more miracles. They wanted signs and wonders and healings. He says, no, it is necessary. For this purpose I have come, what? To do more miracles in other villages? No, to preach the Word. That's the great display of God's power still today. The God's word. He takes frail men, sinful men, uh, flawed vessels, imperfect men. You know that. I'm your pastor. God takes men like myself and many others. And in spite of our weaknesses, he shows forth his power. That the gospel goes forth in the demonstration of the Spirit's power to accomplish God's holy will. God is still doing great and mighty things in our days. Jesus did walk on the water. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He healed lepers. He fed thousands from a few loaves. But you know what the greatest miracle of all is? He rose from the dead. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, He came forth from the grave, triumphant. He is no mere man. He is no Moses. Moses points to him. Moses even says in Deuteronomy, there is one coming amongst your number after me who is greater than I am. And that's the point that the writer of the book of Hebrews makes. Moses had his limitations. Christ has none. You want hope? You want salvation? You want to be rescued? You want to be delivered from all that plagues you? Flee to Christ. And in him have life. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you.
for this passage. We thank you for how we see your your patience, your condescension, your understanding of the man Moses. And Father, we are greatly encouraged in that. But Father, we also rejoice to know that you are the God of the miracles and the God who delivers those in captivity. We thank you that you have accomplished so great a salvation through your son, a salvation that it is ours, full and free, that you should be magnified now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.